0: Welcome to another edition of Heavy Lifting with Ravi Lula. I am talking once again with my guy, Jake Heck. And uh, we are doing a little special supplemental uh, edition of our Last Dance podcast. Um, As promised, uh, we wanted to touch on Phil Jackson. Uh, He was one of the main topics of last week's episodes, but uh, we wanted to focus on Dennis Rodman and the bad boys Pistons uh, primarily there since they're pretty connected and Phil, there was just too much stuff to not have like a two hour podcast with all that other stuff in there. So (laughs) we decided to uh, split them up and give you a full Phil Jackson podcast because there's a lot of stuff that they haven't touched on yet. We're four out of ten episodes in. I would imagine they're going to touch on some of this stuff, but uh, I wanted to cover it just in case they don't. So we're going to do that here. Uh, before we get into Phil Jackson, Jake, how are you doing today?
1: Good. Yeah, it's a good day. Uh, always a good time to get to talk about uh, basketball and specifically Phil Jackson. Very interesting character. So in modern basketball,
0: before we get into Phil Jackson, where are you, where do you stand on Phil Jackson? Are you fan, not a fan? Like, where are you at on Phil Jackson?
1: Uh, I mean, he's really not been a very, uh, good, uh, front office person in the last, you know, six or seven years or wherever he was at, you know, that's kind of I mean, tainted that the end beautiful. there. Cause he, would look so bad.
0: Well, to be fair, also, he really only had the one front office job with the Knicks.
1: And it went very poorly. Yeah, that's it what I'm referring to.
0: did. But he was also, I don't know anyone besides the Knicks that thought it was going to go well. Like, he was in his mid-70s, and he didn't want to move to New York. And they're like, <laughs> here's $10 million a year. And he's like, well, okay. Yeah, so I think well, like I just don't know, I don't know what the I don't, I don't know who was predicting that would go well.
1: <laughs> I, you know, the Knicks have some there they have some flawed ideas right now too. So I think anyway, I think he got some bad press out of that. Rightfully so. He did a bad job. Um to
0: be fair, Jordan's bad in the front office too. So
1: <laughs> Yeah, he's not as bad though somehow.
0: <laughs> I don't know, man. He's been, he's been pretty bad with this
1: team. At least he's present with that's his true. team. That's true. At least he is in the
0: building some nights.
1: Um, no, so I think I gave him some bad press at the end, but I would say I'm a fan. I mean, there's some stuff that is a little out there for me, but I would say I'm a fan. I think he's interesting. I think there's, um, you know, his track record as a coach, and we can define coach a lot of ways, but how he defined coach and what he viewed his role as in that sense, I think he was really excellent. And so there's definitely some pieces to learn there. Um,
0: so. so. I would tend to agree. I, I'm mostly pro Phil Jackson. I will say this. I don't know how good of a basketball mind he is. Um, I think he's a very, I think he's incredible with people. And I think he's incredible at uniting people to a common goal. I don't know if he's a good people person or not. And we'll touch on that later, Mm -hmm. but obviously incredible at uniting people towards a common goal and helping them achieve that goal Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: one of the things that i think stuck out the most about the last dance documentary was the way he handled dennis rodman yes i don't know how many coaches in the league are like okay uh dennis needs a little vacay in the middle of the season here let's see if we can make this work he just kind of inherently understood that and this seems like a really simple thing but that people are different it seems (laughs) like in in sports a lot we like to fit everybody into this specific mold right yeah like alpha male ultra competitive you know straight laced plays by you know plays by the rules on and off the field like that's the that's the mold we want everybody to fit in
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: there's very little room for the idea that you can be successful if you don't fit in that mold. Right. And it seems like Phil identified one, maybe one of the best things he was good at identifying was like, Hey, you can win with different personality types.
1: Yeah. And getting those personality types to work together. Um, Yeah. He's the stuff that he, he did um, the work that he did on that would make, I mean, it makes the psychology people just grin. You know, it's beautiful in that sense. Um, And then sports people are typically, I mean, they're somehow way behind in that area. Um, So he was able to combine those two things. Because I think as much as, you know, his basketball mind wasn't, it's not like this elite inventive basketball mind. I do think he understood X's and O's very well. I don't think he was somehow inept or not capable of using them. Sure. Um, he didn't create anything, but Tex winner. I mean, I have to double check, but I don't believe Tex winner was alive for a good chunk of his Lakers career. So he understood his X's and O's well enough, um, that he could use them and, and maneuver them, um, modify them as the, the league changed, his players changed, his things like that. So he wasn't completely inept. Um, there, but his greatest strength was understanding people, um, and and the motivation piece and and collaboration.
0: Yeah, um, just to to clear up, Tex Winter just died in two thousand eighteen. He um, was he did, an assistant okay. with the Lakers through two thousand eight, so he wasn't there for the last, last two, two. Okay, he was there you. for nine of the eleven.
1: Yeah. And he so, but he was pretty old in those last
0: He was. He was eighty six his last year yeah. with the uh with the Lakers. With the Lakers. Uh, but that being said, um I don't think by any means he is an Phil Jackson, uh, that is, is an inept basketball coach or anything like that. I, I don't mean that in any sense. I think right. that he I don't think he is exceptional on the basketball side of things. I think he's exceptional on the people side of things. Yes. That's where he stands out. And that's in the NBA, especially in the era of the NBA that he and Michael Jordan kind of ushered in. That's much more important.
1: It did become more important, especially in that era. You see it even in this doc as the players start to take control of things. Um and you needed to understand those because leading up to that, you could be a domineering coach and get what you wanted
0: and with these seen X and O's and We've seen that filter down, right, into yep. the college ranks where the blue bloods, they don't really have those domineering head coaches anymore either. And then you start seeing, you know, most of the successful programs at Division One level don't have those Bobby Knight types either anymore. No. And you're even starting finally to see that trickle down into the high school ranks. Although that's still taken quite a bit because you have a lot of people that have been there forever, but
1: yeah, that's going to take, that's, that's going to take, take a minute.
0: <laughs> but the, the, what you see is the relationship management being, I mean, One a in terms of what you're looking for in a in a coach whether it's basketball or anything else basketball specifically because you're talking about such a small group of players and you're talking about a very long season and whether it's college where you have to build those relationships with the players while they're in high school to get them to your school or whether it's the NBA where you have to build those relationships to keep guys happy so they don't demand a trade or leave or whatever. That is by far the most important part of the job at this point is mm. just the the player personality management. Mm-hmm. So when I say I don't think he's exceptional at basketball, I don't think a lot of the really good coaches – I mean, the best coaches are good at both, right? Like a Greg Popovich I think is exceptional, exceptional at the basketball, and I think he's exceptional at managing personalities because with the exception of Kawhi Leonard, he's been – in San Antonio for almost 25 years and not had hardly any issues with players.
1: Yeah, and the Kawhi thing, I mean, it's not even all on him. And um, Kawhi's a but, weird dude. I mean, and I was like, going to say, more, hey, it's, it's not like he had yeah, problems with Pop, but also I think the problems are with Kawhi on this one. I think Kawhi is different. <laughs> so he's different, different.
0: <laughs> he is, and you and you see kind of a disciple of both Phil and Popovich and Steve Kerr, who's really good at both. He's really good at the X's and O's. Although even with Steve Kerr, I think a lot of the X's and O's he delegates. Um, I think he wants a hand in what's going on, but I don't think that's the main part of his job at all.
1: Um, No, I think I've read an article that once it was early on, um, he had a big, like he cast the vision, the scheme. And since then, I think he's relinquished a lot of that. Um, so I know early he was big in the X's and O's part. Um, but more recently, we see him much more on the relational side now that that culture is established.
0: Especially when you were dealing with KD, right? You, you're you dealing with a, a bit of a prima donna, um, a bit of a – I mean, and you've got KD and Draymond in the same locker room. Those are two really big personalities in the same locker room and neither one of them
1: are your best player i'm just throwing that out there
0: it's true (laughs) and so it makes and your best player is just like uh can we just go win rings bruh um yeah so it's you see kind of this this trickle down of the phil jackson style what i wanted to and i guess i'll just put this question out there and then we can expand upon it in in exploring the answer but There are people that will argue he was better at manipulating people than he was at fostering relationships with people. And the argument in favor of him being a master manipulator is that he used whatever tiny animosities players would have in the Bulls. It was obviously with Jerry Krause with their contract situations or with Tony Kukoc in the way that uh, Krause was enamored with him. And things like that to build a united front by demonizing someone from quote unquote the outside. Right. Sure. And then in the Kobe Shack years, it wasn't even someone from the outside. They kind of, he kind of pitted them against each other in order to bring out the best in both of them. And the question is, did he sacrifice? long-term success and long-term relationships in order to cash in immediately on the opportunity to win championships and I'm not even saying if that's what he did it's wrong I'm just asking the question how do you view the way Phil Jackson managed people was it in your mind manipulative or just taking advantage of Animosities that were going to exist, regardless, and taking that negative energy that was already there and just pointing it at something positive,
1: yeah, uh, that's I mean that's a good question. Um, I think my first I would have to i mean i'll I'll go out and say I lean on him being um, a master of managing the personalities um, and utilizing that. Now, within that, of course, there is a level of manipulation. like he's got to figure out what makes people tick. Um, and use that to get what he wants. I mean, that's manipulation. It doesn't make it manipulation has such an evil connotation to it. Um, but I don't think that's what it is all the time. I don't think that that's what it is for him. And I would argue, um, I my main piece of argument for why he's not some master manipulator that um, would sacrifice those things, uh, is is what happened with Shaq and Kobe is he was team Shaq. He wanted the Lakers to keep Shaq and he fought <laughs> yeah. with, he fought with the management to keep Shaq and to deal Kobe. He wanted Shaq. And when they dealt Shaq, he was out. He,
0: it's he true. was gone he did, he for did a skip couple years for uh, just one full year,
1: one full year. Yeah. Um, and so theoretically that you would have seen Kobe and him basically not get along. Kobe is not the type of person to forgive and forget. Um, And so the fact that Kobe wanted Phil back, Kobe asked for Phil back, shows to me that the relationship there was real and that he wasn't just cashing in on something with Kobe to get something out of Kobe transactionally.
0: It makes me feel like there's
1: a real relationship.
0: Considering he wrote a book, and I don't remember the title of this book specifically, but he wrote a book after his first run with the Lakers where he's pretty harsh on Kobe. And unless there is a real relationship there, you can't swallow those kind of uh, difficult truths for whatever truth was in there without – you can't just swallow that and move on with the relationship unless there is a real relationship there. Um, And people, when you hear the word manipulation, you assume nefarious, right? You assume ill intent. That's not necessarily true. It usually is, let's be honest. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it doesn't have to be. You can manipulate things. All manipulating really means is moving things around for a purpose, for an end goal. Right. And obviously Phil did that. Um so the argument that so you're you're taking the side that he's he's more of a personality guru and less of a nefarious manipulator.
1: Yeah. Well, I just, I think, I think you have to lean that way um, because of, because of the way the relationships play out. And I know some of this, this bull stuff, I mean, it goes a little sideways and sour for a lot of these guys to a lot of, you know, to a lot of the other guys. Um, There's that one's pretty hard, but I think the Lakers situation with how he um, was able, you know, not, not just had a relationship enough with Kobe that he could say he's in, but Kobe wanted him back. I think that just speaks volumes because Kobe didn't want a lot of guys back. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's fair, really fair not, enough. it that really wasn't his MO. And so the fact that he wanted him back and and trusted him and also, you know, sacrificed some for him, I think that, I think there's a true um, caring there that
0: would go beyond the nefarious. Manipulation. So let me play devil's advocate here.
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's got to be inner it's got to be entertaining for the listeners.
0: Sure. Here. Right. So you've got two different situations mm-hmm. in which he's got arguably, let's say, two of the best five players in the game at the time, in Kobe and Shaq, and then Michael and Scotty. At okay. worst, two of the best ten. Okay. Bad. So, first of all, the argument starts with how hard can it possibly win, be to win with those people? And I think that's a fair place to start. Now, it continues with, okay, you know you have a guy who in, in Michael Jordan who's incredibly competitive and can be, I mean, you saw you see him on the documentary poking fun of Jerry Krause and that type of thing, but it doesn't. It doesn't seem initially, at least, that Michael's issue with Jerry Krause was any more than just he didn't necessarily respect him that much. Okay. By the end of it, Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, and a lot of the Bulls just straight up despised Jerry Krause. Now, it makes sense for Scottie, right? Because he's got the contract issue. But... It's you can make a pretty easy argument that it doesn't make sense for Michael to be that worked up about it because it's not his contract, it's not his money. He's making so much money from Nike, it doesn't really matter what his basketball money is. Mm -hmm. You can make the argument that it makes no sense whatsoever that they're that they just straight hate Tony Kukoc to the point that it's irrational. You know, they (laughs) they just completely dress him down in the 92 Olympics while he's playing for, I believe Yugoslavia. And I mean, it's been four episodes and we haven't seen anything from from him in the dock yet. He was on this team. He averaged like 15 points a game. (laughs) You know, I think he was the third, I, I believe he was the third leading scorer after Michael and Scotty. And we've heard more from Ron Harper than we've heard from Tony Kukoc. And it's hard to believe that there's anything to do with that, except either A, Kukoc didn't want to be a part of it, or B, said, yeah, you can do it as long as Kukoc isn't in it. (laughs) And so that type of grudge, I feel like, has to be fostered. It has to be, Uh you know, you kind of have to blow on the embers a little bit to get that flame 100% burning, because once, typically once Michael vanquished someone... Unless there was another factor, like with Isaiah Thomas and the not shaking hands, and Michael had already hated Isaiah Thomas for freezing him out, I believe it was his first All Star game. And unless there's multiple things going against someone, once Michael beats you, he seems pretty okay with it. Like he's like, I'm better than you, we're good here. And that never happened with Tony Kukoc, even though he was never an adversary. And it never happened with Jerry Krause, so to me, it seems like there may have been an external force, aka Phil Jackson, kind of fanning the flame there to keep that fire alive. Um, I think that's a that's a fair argument um, because theoretically, the the and not necessarily his job, but Phil could have played mediator between GM. And players. That's essentially what a head coach is. He's a middle manager.
1: Sure, and he could have. I think. I think there's a couple of flaws in that argument, though. I mean, I think the first one comes with Michael hated Jerry before Phil was even hired as an assistant because he wanted to tank the season, uh, Michael's second season, and Michael wanted to go to the playoffs and try to win ball games, and so he was already. He already did not respect, did not like, he had did a not base appreciate
0: lack of respect for Jerry Krause. I agree um, with that.
1: So that's already in existence. And as things go on, I think um I think a lot of this stems from the fact that those three we talk about, Scotty Michael and Phil, all actually had such a good tight relationship that those other issues actually mattered to each other. Like the lack of respect for Scotty's um, you know uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, <laughs> contributions to this team was not being rewarded financially. I think that did bother Michael in the sense that it's like we're doing this together you know I think the lack of they they ref- they didn't want to bring Phil back and Michael's like I don't want to play for anybody else like this guy this that's a relationship. Um, when people say stuff like that there's a relationship there. And so the fact that Krause did not care what Michael wanted, did not care how Scotty felt, and did not respect Phil, I think all those things led to led to those guys fueling off of each other, um, because they had a genuine relationship. Because the argument for Phil doing that stuff in L.A. is the fact that he pitted Shaq and Kobe against each other. Well, you got to be one of the worst manipulators ever to think that your best move is to try to break up your best two players. <laughs> like that doesn't make sense to me.
0: <laughs> well, here's the, here's the, the theory behind, behind that is he, he saw the animosity between them. He knew eventually it's probably going to lead to a split. So rather than letting it slow burn and try and win, you know, four championships over the course of eight years, he's like, you know what? Let's just light Kobe on fire. And went three in a row, and then Shaq gets the F out of town because he hates it here so much or whatever. One of them gets out of town because they hate it here so much. But I want to go back to the Scotty thing for a second because we've seen this in recent history, where Steph Curry, on that first and I believe second team as well, the the 73 and nine team, was like the fourth, fifth, sixth highest player on that team uh, coming off of a four-year, like 40 or $44 million. He was making 10 or $11 million a year. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's a lot more money than Scotty was making at the time. But compared to the rest of the league, you could argue, especially considering he was a back-to-back MVP in those seasons, including the only ever unanimous MVP at that point. Shout out that he was even more undervalued than Scottie Pippen was. And sure. and Steph Curry understood, hey, I agreed to this deal because I had uncertainty in my future. He could have signed a shorter-term deal one or two years, proved he was healthy, and gotten more money sooner. But he didn't because he's like, you know what? The ankles are an issue. I'm going to take the four years and $40 million and have a little bit of security there. Scotty Pippen didn't even have the injury thing. He could have signed a shorter deal. No one held a gun to his head to make him sign that shorter deal. Or to make him sign the longer deal. He could have signed a shorter deal. Bet on yep. himself. And re-upped sooner. That, that's 100% something he could have done. And he chose not to. So as much as I love Scotty Pippen. And as underappreciated as I think Scottie Pippen is, and as much as I think Jerry Krause is an absolute D-bag, it is management is management's job to try and find bargains where they can. I'm not,
1: and I'm not saying that they were wrong to make him live up to his contract. I do think there's this there's a significant difference between the Steph Curry situation and the Scotty situation because of the way the CBAs were working. Um they could have renegotiated his contract a lot easier than they could in this modern one. Like, p- people don't do that now.
0: Yeah, it doesn't um, exist in the NBA. It
1: doesn't it? exist. And but you also don't exist.
0: have the long-term deals.
1: Right. And so it used to exist. So they you, they could have potentially done that. And, I mean, as we saw, we talked about this on the pod before where, well, he signed that deal at the time. The, the amount of money he was making per year was pretty decent, but the ca- everything spiked the league because of him. exploded
0: like a few years in.
1: Yeah, so I mean it's tough to really – I mean it's just a bad situation for Scotty and management had the policy of we're not reworking this deal. This is the bargain. We're hanging on to it. So I I mean I don't hold them – I don't hold them in like contempt for that. But at the same time, like you could see somebody like Michael who pretty much gets what he wants when he wants it could be frustrated that things that he thinks should happen aren't happening
0: well, I mean that's I'm not... not even totally true because Michael's early contract was not that unsimilar to Scotty's. It was long term, it was low money per year. I think he signed like a 10-year, $20 million deal or something. He was making only two million dollars a year for a lot of the beginning of his career. And then he cashed in hard at the end, where he was right. making like thirty to forty million dollars a year. And that's part of what made Scotty so mad. But Scotty came into the league later signed his long-term deal later, and so he wasn't expiring until that point. The other thing that bothers me about the Scottie Pippen situation is kind of how he handles it. There's a point in a playoff game, I believe during Michael Jordan's baseball sabbatical, where Scottie Pippen refuses to check back into a playoff game in the fourth quarter. Then you've got, before that, it's unfortunate, but the migraine thing is, is something people are going to hold against him because he has a migraine in Game 7 of 1990, and they, you know, don't make the finals because of that. And, you know, there's you can make an argument they very likely make it and possibly win the 1990 finals if Scottie Pippen doesn't have a migraine. Now, did he actually have a migraine? Did the pressure get to him? Like, I don't know. It could just be the worst luck in the world. He had a migraine on, migraine on Game 7. Yeah, I mean, but, all... There's a lot of there's a lot of things you know. It's already mentioned in the in the doc before that he chose not to get the foot surgery until the start of the season rather than doing it over the summer because he didn't want it to screw up his summer. There's a lot of things where you're like, okay, it's not like he's necessarily a model employee.
1: No, I don't think Scott is. But I think that's where that's where Phil's relationship piece came in and made this thing work is that he got Michael. Michael, who, as of now, was pretty pissed about it still. I mean, I'm surprised that he didn't demand that Scottie Pippen be traded. Like, that's got to be Phil working in there to be like, hey, Michael, calm down. We need him. He's your guy. It's a good piece. Relax. He's going through a lot. Like, that seems to me like evidence uh, for Phil being – Uh, more relational person and more understanding person when it when it matters i mean for the argument that matters which in this case like was was to try to win that year you know um phil didn't do the chicago bulls any favors in that sense in my opinion in my opinion if he really wanted to do the bulls a favor he would have fanned the flames gotten scotty traded for somebody who could have helped him right away and made the argument he should be signed again the next year with those you know with <laughs> whoever they traded for you know but um I think that's more of phil helping build relationships and helping to get the most out of people getting Scotty back mentally after all that is impressive getting people to accept Scotty after that stuff is it's hard work I mean that doesn't just happen
0: so that's part of my argument though is if he was able to if he was able to get everybody back on board with Scotty after Scotty had kind of a spotty track record of some of these things, if he was so good with relationships, why wasn't he able to get Michael and Scotty and some of these other people to see, Hey, if we encourage Tony Kukoc, he could be really helpful to us when Tony Kukoc himself had done nothing wrong.
1: The yeah, only thing that Tony think,
0: Kukoc did wrong was that Jerry Krause liked him. I the third
1: leading scorer is about as best as you could do. I mean, I don't know how much more you could have asked those guys because uh, they are, I mean, they didn't like him. I, I mean, it's I not don't, that
0: they didn't like him, they didn't like that Jerry Krause liked him.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that led to them not really liking him. I mean, they could have. those two guys are good enough to win a lot of ball games and specifically not let him touch the ball.
0: I mean, (laughs) right. But you, you have a guy in Phil Jackson who convinces Michael Jordan. Hey, let's play the triangle instead of letting you score 37 points per game. Let's play, um, you know, let's bring Scotty back into the fold because it's what's necessary. Let's let Dennis Rodman go on vacation so he can have a bender and blow off some steam. It's weird to me if he's so good with relationships and not, nefariously manipulating things. Why wasn't he able to get them to see, Hey, your life is going to be way easier if you bring Tony Kukoc into the fold instead of making him this pariah.
1: Well, I think that's where you see that evolution come through with Steve Kerr able to make that work with that many, that many mouths to feed. I think at the time, like it was hard enough to get Michael to drop from 37 down to 28, 29, 30. And to convince to put at risk of going any lower than that on a nightly basis, I just don't think it was going to happen. I think they were winning enough games. Um, to be honest, I think Phil Jackson had enough with Jerry Krause too, and probably didn't want to make him look any kind of good with the prospect. Well, that's that he my liked. point.
0: That's my point um, though. Is rather than manage the relationships, he's like, well, you I know what, Jerry, I can get, Jerry... I can get what I want out of this in pissing off Jerry Krause. And making Jerry Krause look like an idiot because I don't like the way yeah. he's treating me in my contract negotiations.
1: I think, though, but I think he got, I mean, I think he, I think his loyalties were with, you know, he has two, two parties that are odds and I don't think that he created the odds against them. So he's got two parties that are odds and I think he sided with the one he had a deeper relationship with. He had more relationship with Michael and Scotty than he did with Jerry Krause and Coach. So he's gonna, he's gonna side with those guys and, I mean, when those two parties are that far at odds, like there's just no way you can mend that. I mean, I can't, I can't hold him responsible for making everybody harmonious. I mean, Steve Kerr right, did a I heck can... of a job with Kevin Durant, but he still left. I mean, who's are we one, blame that on him too? You know. That's one hard. last
0: point before one last one last argument to in in the camp of Phil Jackson is just an opportunistic manipulator. Okay. <laughs> okay. And that's this. When it benefited him, him and Jerry Krause were actually very close at the beginning of his tenure. Ah, yeah. That's a tough look. It's not like he thought this guy was a piece of human garbage all along. Correct. He allowed himself to be coached so that he would get the assistant job. And then once he got the assistant job, he recognized, okay, Jerry Krause is my path to a head coaching job. Let me sidle in here next to Tex Winner, who Jerry Krause is obsessed with, so that I can get Doug Collins pushed out of town so I can get what I want. And once he, could, once he stopped getting what he wanted from Jerry Krause, all of a sudden Jerry Krause is this awful piece of human garbage that he turns the team against.
1: So I'm going to go ahead and say the change mostly occurred with Jerry Krause. Um, because we see early on in his career, he's actually very good at his job. He can identify talent. He can bring in bargains. He makes shrewd decisions. He makes tough decisions, uh, for the best interest of the team. And as it goes on, um, he seems to start to need more credit. And so he doesn't want people that were attached to the other credit to get it. And so I think there's more to say about Jerry Krause changing his position Than there is Phil Jackson. I think. I mean, that's a great point. I would disagree
0: because Jerry Krause, I think, is pretty much the same guy the entire time. He's he
1: gets a lot worse at his job though.
0: Not while he's not while he's not during the three the second three peat he doesn't though. He makes sure they've got Rodman, brings him in to replace Horace Grant. Whether you like him or not, he brings in Tony Kukoc, who becomes the team's third leading scorer. Yeah. He brings in Ron Harper, who takes a lot of the defensive, uh, the the defensive load off of Michael Jordan. I mean, he brings in good role. He brought in Steve Kerr, who obviously was a huge role player. I mean, he brings in good good role players to put these around guys these guys.
1: Got brought in around ninety four ninety five though. I mean, not a lot of the. I mean, these guys are getting brought in at that point. They're not getting brought in ninety seven. I mean. I think okay, the switch happened pretty early. I think it happened or happened. I think it happens core. pretty late. But I don't think everybody hated him in 90. I mean, I don't I don't think Phil Jackson wasn't worried about his job in 95, 96 when they go 72 and 10. It's He's after not, 96, but, 97 they're just Jerry Cross is like I'm done with you.
0: If I'm you listen you. to some of the if you listen to uh I think it's Tim Floyd is the Iowa State coach's name. He says that Jerry Krause was courting him all the way back to, I think, the first time that Phil got offered the job. I think sometime around 93 or when when Jordan retired the first time. I mean, there's evidence that Jerry Krause was kind of always trying to replace Phil. Uh, So I don't know that that's necessarily evidence that that's when he starts to lose it late. That's I mean, that's
1: an interesting case for it. I just... So, I just don't understand, though, if he's trying to replace Phil so early, then how is Phil the opportunistic one?
0: He's opportunistic because as soon as he got what he wanted from Jerry and stopped getting what he wanted from Jerry, and he claims okay. to have been really close with Jerry, he switches and goes into, well, let's turn everybody against Jerry. This guy is the I villain. Think,
1: I think now, I would Jerry buy Krauts that.
0: very well might be the villain, but... At the very least, Phil Jackson is opportunistic. At worst, maybe he's kind of a manipulative dick.
1: I would like to hear more about that coaching switch because, I mean, I wasn't even alive at the time because I think there is some very
0: uh, savory
1: things that went down there.
0: Uh, I think the way Phil got the job from Doug Collins is pretty shady. Yeah. Because, Uh, as I mentioned, if Scottie Pippen doesn't have a migraine, Doug Collins is coaching in the finals. Yeah. Which is a tough look to fire that guy. Yeah. They it consistently is. got better every year under Doug Collins. I mean... Was that the, was that was Doug Collins' first year? Yeah, I, or he,
1: l- last year? I thought that was Phil Jackson's first year.
0: I believe it was Doug Collins' last year.
1: Um, at any rate, I think... I would, I would be more inclined to believe that and to kind of start to lean that way um, if Phil Jackson had abandoned the things that Jerry Krause wanted him to learn as the assistant. Um, Phil Jackson did keep almost all that stuff that he was kind of trained yeah. with, so I don't think he turned – I don't think it was, oh, I got what I want out of Jerry, now I'm going to go do my own thing. Um, he kept a lot of Jerry's. The other people, Jerry Krause loves Tex Winner. He kept him around forever. Um, Phil took him to L.A., as we talked about. Uh, so I think – I just – I don't think that's exactly how it went down. Um, and there's probably a lot of pieces that build to this, that relationship going poorly. And I'm not saying Phil's completely innocent in that, but I don't think he's – a wildly opportunistic D bag.
0: Okay. So you're right. He did. That was the Easter conference finals run was Phil's first year. um, Not, not Collins last year. So um, that is something to think about. So to be fair, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle between your argument and my argument. I think
1: that's definitely true with the Kraus situation. I don't think Phil, um, I think there's very little, I think it'd be very hard to make the case that Phil is part of his coaching was to take whatever issues there were and to blow it up as hot and as fast as he could. I just don't think that I just don't I just don't think that stands um, over the course of time. And I just don't think there's enough evidence. Now, did he use that, like you said earlier? Did he use that as motivation for people? I mean, probably,
0: yeah. Well, that's the the thing. The question is not whether or not these divisions existed. It's whether he helped create them or if he just used pre-existing divisions to make the best of a bad situation. And again, I I think think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I don't think he created them. I do think, especially in the Jerry Krause situation, I do think he fanned the flame pretty aggressively towards the end. Um, but oh, yeah. I think yeah. there was gonna be a level of animosity there, regardless between Scotty and Michael and Jerry Krause. With the fit uh, with the uh, Shaq and Kobe situation, I think I think he. I think he saw that there was an an unfixable difference in the way Shaq and Kobe viewed basketball. Yeah. And I think he realized that he had a limited amount of time to win championships, a much more limited amount of time than anyone else realized to win championships with them together. Then than anyone else really understood at that time because of that irreconcilable difference where winning was the most important thing in the world to Kobe and it's all that mattered and Shaq wanted to win but also wanted to have fun doing it and yeah, I think he saw that and just did the best he could under those circumstances I do think he probably used Kobe's maniacal focus uh, to kind of turn him into the best player he could. And that kind of by definition turned Kobe further and further away from Shaq. But I think that was probably an inevitable fallout. I
1: was going to say, I think it was pretty inevitable that at some point, I mean, and really about the point that it happened, that Kobe was going to realize that he may be better than Shaq and Shaq was not really willing to be second fiddle. And that wasn't going to do it for him at the time. Um, and so, Which is yeah. ironic
0: because then he chose to be second fiddle to Dwayne Wade just well, to stick I it think, to Kobe.
1: I was going to say, like, I don't think he when he signed that contract, he knew he was going to be second fiddle. But once he got there, he realized that was going to be the route to sticking it to Kobe. Um but yeah, and and I then I don't think there's I I don't even know what argument we could make um, against Phil on the negative side here for the last two championships with the Lakers. Um, I'm not familiar with anything that he could have possibly been utilizing there. So
0: yeah, that just there's don't not there's not a lot of evidence there that there was animosity between players any, or um, or management or really anyone at that point. So um, I
1: think. Um, so I think that's and that's probably one of the best the best places to find the evidence that that's not necessarily his MO and he doesn't actually he doesn't even need it. So um I don't think he's a I don't think he's division creator. I think he recognizes those um I think that's part of his gift as managing people, as someone who can see the irreconcilable differences in others and um maybe see what he can do in the meantime like the Kobe Shaq thing there was I mean we look back at history now and it's, it's shocking that nobody that everybody else didn't see that this thing was going to be short lived you know um those two guys don't have all that much in common in, in on the basketball court in that point in their careers uh, except for the fact that they're both really good at
0: it <laughs> sure yeah
1: so there's not a lot of else that they've got going for each other and I know later in life they became uh They've developed great relationships, and I, I have no idea what helped foster that. But for, for us as as fans not to recognize that that was maybe going to be a flawed plan seems like that's on us, and, and Phil was the wise one to get what he could while he could.
0: Yeah, I just don't think we knew that much about Kobe at the time. I mean, he's still really, really young, and I don't think we knew that he was – so single-mindedly focused at that point in his career um okay so we we've talked about a lot about phil as the uh kind of personality manager
1: mm-hmm.
0: and maybe the light manipulator um
1: i think that's fair
0: but a lot of people they associate phil um, immediately with the triangle offense and a lot of people don't even don't even know what that is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's correct.
0: <laughs> um, so, basic. And people wonder, well, why doesn't anybody run the triangle today? It was so successful with uh, the Bulls and the Lakers. And so, I wanted to get on just touch on that a little bit before we wrapped up here. Okay. Um, number one, triangle offense is pretty simple. It's a Triple post offense, more or less. You've got a guy in the low post, kind of in the pro post area, and then a guy in the corner creating space. Basically, it's just designed to create a balance in terms of where people are on the floor and create spacing on the floor. Now, in the 90s, that meant being all inside the three-point line. Obviously, now that's would not be the case, but that's part of the reason people don't run it now is because the spacing is different in the game than it used to be. Off of that, you basically had, and really with any motion type offense, you have options that you can run, whether it's cuts, screens, that type of thing, where you're allowed to do certain things from different positions on the floor, but really you're always resetting up the triangle to give the floor balance and spacing, and that's really all it is, which is why... A guy like Jordan thrives in it because, as a younger, more athletic player, he could be in that pro post and be attacking the rim. As an older um, player, he would go down in that low post a lot, and and get his. That's where that you know famous fadeaway we see all the time came from a, a lot. Yeah. And it also created a sense of balance for the team because the other people had something to do. It wasn't just give Michael Jordan the ball at the start of the shot clock and see what he can do by the end of it. And if he can't figure something out, he'll probably pass it to you at some point, maybe. Right. Where, so that's kind of a very similar to the ISO ball that we saw really heavily in the, in the late nineties and early two thousands. It's a very similar to what we see James Harden doing very similar to what we saw Russell Westbrook doing his last few years in Oklahoma City, whereas theoretically the triangle is a more motion based offense where it's more similar to what we saw from the last Spurs championship team from the early Warriors championship team uh, where you've got a lot of ball movement and a lot more people being involved at any given time.
1: Yeah, I mean that's I mean that's really that's it. it the, the ball moves a lot, and the players move a lot, and the triangle itself provides um, spacing and and some structure to allow these players to have some concept of what's going on. It's just a structure for moving. the
0: motion to occur, uh,
1: right? And I think you know that you've got as you as you kind of outlined. There's one side of the floor which is the triangle um, has three players positioned, and they can be Um, modifying those positions a little bit due to player strength. And the other side has a little two-man spacing going on. And so you can play a two-man game on one side. You can play the triangle game on the other side. As the ball moves, you get a lot of stuff. And it's hard for a defense to guard, theoretically, because you've got a lot of different things going on. And at any given moment, any one of them could be um, a threat to score. score. And so – the biggest key to the the traditional triangle, the truly strict traditional triangle, is you've got to have basically one of the best players in the world operating it um, because it required somebody to be able to have this transcendent skill set to play inside, to play outside, to be a dribbler on a mismatch, to be able to shoot um, if you were going to sag off. You needed somebody like
0: that. You basically needed that would force the defense to abandon someone else right whether it was Shaq in the low post whether it was Jordan or Kobe on the perimeter you needed someone that would force the opposition the the opposing defense into a no-win situation where either they get beat one-on-one by the outstanding player or they leave them and leave someone else open And that's why – that's, again, part of the reason why a lot of people don't run it because not everybody has that guy. Not everybody has a player that can play that way and still be efficient. Um, I think that's the key because people are
1: starting to understand that piece of it. Now, when you go back and you run the numbers of these players, they were that good and still met efficiency standards. Which Um,
0: even Kobe – towards the end of his run where they were running less and less triangle. And obviously by the time Phil left, they really weren't running it at all. But even by the, by the second uh, set of championships in LA, Kobe is becoming less and less efficient. And he's one of the best people in the world at that mid range game that, and the game that he played. So that kind yeah. of just as a reminder as to how freakish Jordan was, to be so efficient in taking horribly inefficient shots.
1: Yeah. And that's what's changed is that triangle offense, the traditional um strict triangle produces a ton of mid rangers. And you need to have players that are wildly efficient that you know, that's in in the nineties we didn't really measure anything by those standards. So just we just it
0: they, didn't they just matter as much. Mid-rangers.
1: Yeah, it didn't matter as much. But now when people run that, they don't want that shot in the first place. And if they do, it's gotta be Somebody, I mean, like, there's like four or five players in the league that people are like, yeah, you can take mid-rangers and we feel good about it.
0: Um But even those guys, it, it's, <laughs> it's funny because even those players can't do it at a level in which it justifies taking those shots all the time. Right. By the end of Jordan's career, that's almost all he was taking. He was getting to the rim a little bit, and during the weird years where they shortened the three-point line, he shot a few more threes. But he just lived in the least efficient place on the floor and is still one of the most efficient players of all time. Yeah, like, it's it's uh, it's it's other worlds. So I even mean. if you have someone like Kobe who was really good in the inefficient spots, it still doesn't make sense to play a system in which it creates those shots.
1: Right. And that's and that's what's hard is that that system, requ- you know, it creates a lot of mid-rangers and it absolutely requires you to make teams pay for giving you a mid-ranger. And nobody's, I mean, we, we know now from the analytics standpoint that over the course of a game and a season, that's not a sustainable way to win.
0: It also does work if you've got an incredibly dominant big man. If you've got a yes. dominant big man, it will work.
1: And the league has gone away from that as well. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's really...
0: Because there's so few big men that are, again, efficiently dominant. They used to just dump the ball into whoever the biggest person was on the floor, and that was the offense, right? right. It was like, oh, get a post-up that we want to get as close as possible. So everybody was looking for that seven-footer and the, the big man that could post up. Whereas that's obviously not the case anymore. And so two of the shots that this, this offense creates the most of have fallen wildly out of favor with basketball. Now, part of the reason more people didn't run it at the time is, again, it's really difficult to get the players that can make it work.
1: Yeah, and it, I mean, at the time, it was, there was there's a lot of players that wanted to play the ISO game. Your best player wanted to play the ISO game, and that's part of what makes Your Phil best Jackson, player wanted
0: the ball all the time. That's yeah, still the case. The best that's player the wants the ball all the and time. And
1: that's, that's part of what makes Phil Jackson— um, it's why you give credit to him as a coach and not just as a psychology guru is because he figured out how to blend basketball X's and O's from Tex winner to getting the best player in the world to, to do it in a way that he had to give up the ball and still managed to figure out how to be a great scorer um, while not having the ball all the time during a time period when the best player on every other team got to have the ball as much as they wanted and do whatever they wanted. And so it was a very,
0: I mean, that's still um, the case, right? It, like, I mean, It's mo- almost the entirely case. the case still.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's mostly the case still. And I think that's, again, it just speaks volumes to what Phil Jackson was able to do as a coach and why he gets a lot of credit um, for that. And I know when he went to the Knicks, that's why they wanted to put the triangle and they thought Melo could do it and
0: uh, couldn't. Certainly not would, the version of Melo that he <laughs> still got.
1: Yeah. The the younger, the early versions of Melo would have been... Like Melo,
0: when he first got, he to got to New York, New York maybe would have done. been
1: interesting. Um, sure. He had a lot of the pieces of the game, especially some of the guys that went with him. There was enough other pieces that it could have been extremely interesting to see it. Especially potentially.
0: with the 2013 Knicks that I think at the time set the league record for most threes in a season. It would have been interesting to see yeah. Mello operate in the triangle with that much space.
1: Yeah, because you would have had, like, a Mello, a JR.
0: I um, believe you had Jason Kidd on that team. I believe Steve Novak was on that team. Um, it was a really was interesting a, team.
1: Was Amari on that team yet?
0: Briefly, I think, but I think he was hurt most of the time. Um, I believe that was, like, the Pablo Prigioni year. Um It was a really interesting team with a lot of spacing that could have made, that would have maybe been one of the
1: Tyson Chandler.
0: Oh yeah, he had the rim protection. Had a
1: decent year. Uh, Kenny Martin was towards the end. Quentin Richardson, Iman Shumpert, Jr. Amari was on the roster. Um, Jason Kidd that you mentioned. Uh, Yeah, this this roster would have been extremely interesting um, to see what you could have gotten out of that. To see if it would work in a more modern, you know, in the, I mean,
0: we we're right
1: to where, where we're at, but in a more modern um, sense, it would have been compelling, but that's just not, that's not the lot that uh, Phil Jackson drew there and everything. So,
0: well, uh, and again, Carmelo is one of those guys that doesn't like to give up the basketball that much.
1: Right. And so he would have, I mean, that would have been.
0: A tough sell. That's but a tough sell. A
1: tough sell, especially as somebody from where Phil Jackson was at in L.A., trying to be the general manager versus someone who's there on a day-to-day basis building those relationships. I think Derek Fisher was the hired head coach to run the triangle. I
0: believe out so, yeah. And because the they thought at the, time, the same amount of respect. <laughs> they thought at the time that Steve Kerr was going to take that job uh, because of Phil Jackson, and then... Stan Van Gundy turned down the Warriors, and so the Warriors went after Steve Kerr, and so Steve Kerr bailed on the Knicks to go be the Warriors head coach. Yeah,
1: because he was enamored by Steph Curry, rightfully so. Good man. <laughs> Smart. Wise wise decision.
0: Um, is, but yeah, there any, I
1: mean,
0: is there anything else you wanted to say about the triangle specifically as it relates to Phil?
1: I mean, I think... I think there's a lot of that spacing is still an imprint on the league and a lot of stuff you see still have when you take a screen, you know, a a freeze frame of what teams are doing on offense with some spacing. That triangle stuff is still fairly. There's
0: influences for sure. There's
1: influences a lot of places. Um, They don't run it the strict traditional way that he and Tex Winter did, but there's influences all over the league. Um, And I think. I think it was said in the doc, and I just I just couldn't agree more with the concept of that style of offense directly correlated with the way that he believed a team should exist and how he could get people to buy in and everything. And so this offense was just his. It was almost like his spiritual. Um.
0: It was. It was his, basically and X and O's. You it know? was his animal offense basically yeah
1: exactly and so i think that he just thought that that was the best thing and and it it worked in his settings because he worked he made it work as the person who was running it and i'm not convinced just anybody could have done that
0: so i want to we'll wrap up talking about phil's uh belief system if you will yeah. uh we've both read some of his books um, the one I read most recently was Sacred Hoops, which deals a little more directly with his belief system. You read what Eleven Rings? Eleven Rings, yeah. Um, and so I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Phil identifies himself as a Zen Buddhist. Yeah. Um, he grew up in a uh, in a Christian home, in, where both of his parents were ministers. Mm-hmm. Um. I do you remember what tradition they came from? What denomination? I want to say Mennonite, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. There, it yeah, might be it, Methodist. I might be getting my M's confused.
1: Very, at the, it was a very conservative, very strict um,
0: Christianity. Vir- no,
1: what?
0: <laughs> yeah, so- I know.
1: But even yes. even within that sect, it was on the it was on the stricter uh, realm, and he was in a very conservative rural area growing up, and um, hadn't experienced a whole lot of the world.
0: Um, and then okay, it, it was it was uh, assemb- assemblies of God, but his mother was yeah. from a long line of German Mennonites.
1: Yeah, so you get the the Mennonite super conservative Assembly of God, very
0: very conservative. Vocal. Yeah. Um, so he he comes from this tradition, a strict Christian yeah. upbringing, uh, goes to college and then New York and smokes a lot of weed and turns into a hippie.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, he grows up in Montana, goes to college in North Dakota, and he's very sheltered uh, from the world and then shows up in New York. <laughs> in the and States.
0: is no longer sheltered.
1: Yeah, uh, the, late, the, 60s, I think. late 60s. Late 60s, yes. Yeah, 60s, so, in, so 60s and 70s in New York City after being on a, you know, basically middle of nowhere in the, or the first borderline years Canada. Years life. Yeah, yeah, he um, he learned some things. Maybe not <laughs> all of them in the best way, but he learned he, some things.
0: He experienced a lot of life when he got to New York. Yeah. And um, so that really <laughs> uh, changed his
1: view on things, you know, very impactful formative years. He really. Uh, got in
0: on some new stuff so i think to be fair i think it started before that because he had a lot of experience with the native americans around his home in montana Mm
1: -hmm.
0: when he was growing up and so i think seeds of well maybe there's other belief systems maybe there's other things that hold closer to what i feel um versus what he was getting from the from the yes, Mennonite and assembly to, of God's tradition to what I he
1: think is assemblies have got churchgoers, yes. uh, even into his college years, but he definitely, I think once this he got definitely to gave him more, that opportunity to allow those to explore feelings some of the ideologies things. to really develop and grow. Yeah. I, I think definitely.
0: And so later on in his life, he starts to kind of develop this, uh, Zen Buddhist, uh, beliefs where, um, and one of the th- the thing that I'll focus on because it relates mostly to basketball, because I don't want to um, bastardize trying to explain Zen Buddhism. And yeah, I'm
1: not going that route either.
0: The one thing that he preached from his uh, uh, Buddhist beliefs was a was the idea of being present, being present in your current situation, and being fully present. Because so many times people are thinking about what is coming up or what it has just happened or whatever else they're worried about the future or the past or whatever and in basketball and and this is something that really hit home with Michael Jordan as much as anyone was just to be present in the moment be fully accepting of the situation you're in and embrace that opportunity that that present moment offers Mm -hmm. um and that's one of the things that michael jordan seemed to take to heart the most in his playing career i don't think he i don't think he let it move into other parts of his life the way phil did in terms of changing his belief systems and that type of thing but in in terms of basketball it's something that really spoke to michael jordan in terms of just being present in the moment and so there's also and then you, you get into a lot of the tribal stuff with the native americans i think that's where a lot of the belief in community and and sharing the basketball came in with the triangle offense where you know if certain tribe members aren't happy the tribe is not going to operate as well as it could and i think that was part of his philosophy with the triangle offense and everything like that so it is interesting as you mentioned how The triangle offense was a reflection of his core beliefs, rather than just some basketball offense that he picked out of nowhere.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's what made a lot of his stuff work. It was it was so genuine. Um, You know, you see it all the time, especially high school coaches and then some of the college coaches. They come up with these. I mean, I'm gonna. I don't want to mean anybody, but they come up with a lot of gimmicks to try to make stuff work and little catchphrases and things like that and to try to get people to buy in. Um, and Phil did some of that stuff, but it was genuine. And so it worked like players can tell the difference. Right. And so when he wanted to do these mindfulness activities or do guided meditation or just some of that stuff, like it wasn't just a gimmick for him. It wasn't just some weird motivational tool that he pulled out of his pocket or read in a book or online that day that he wanted to try, like it was genuine. Um, and so him being so vulnerable and open with that stuff, I think resonated with the players. And I think they gave him a chance and were able to bond in a lot of ways because he was, he was consistently himself and open and um, with his belief system and, and how that affected the way that he did business.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's fair and I think that's as good of a place to wrap up as any. We're at about an hour with you now and um I think I've exhausted my my Phil Jackson devil's advocate takes for the uh <laughs> for the podcast. So uh I, Jake, do you have anything to add before we wrap up here?
1: Uh I I really would recommend um Reading 11 Rings, they do talk a lot about some of this stuff from the, um, I mean, obviously he covers a, a wide gamut of things, but some of these things that are covered in this doc are in the book, um, and it's fascinating to get his perspective that was written down before all this, and um, there's enough, I, I don't know, it's sparked enough interest in me that I'm considering rereading the book myself just because there's so many good little tidbits and stories and things uh, in there that he covers uh, with this Bulls team and with the Lakers and a um, lot of good, a lot of good takes, a lot of good things to uh, bring back memories of sports while we finish up this quarantine.
0: Yeah, so uh, yeah, I would I would highly recommend Sacred Hoops as well. That's a really good book. I, I really appreciated, um, really appreciated that. And if you want like a a you know Cliff Notes version of, of Zen Buddhism. Sacred Hoops kind of offers that as well. So um, that is all we have for you here today on Heavy Lifting with Ravi Lula. You can find me on Facebook, Heavy Lifting with Ravi Lula, on Twitter or Instagram, at Lula, And as always, on the website, ravilularadio.com. And until next Sunday when we've got episodes five, five and six. And six. Ooh, we're getting past the halfway point this week. Uh, we've yeah, got episodes if five I don't
1: get more and ninety seven, ninety eight footage by now by this <laughs> i'm gonna be you're gonna be hearing from me on this pod
0: all right we will uh we will hit <laughs> you up with the uh episodes five and six podcast on late late sunday night uh ready for you first thing monday morning uh, but until then i hope you have a good week